climate change, just transitions, climate justice, mashed potato, and Monet, young people yelling at politicians, the rather chilling announcement at COP27 by the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez that, quote, humanity is on a highway to climate hell, unquote. You'd be forgiven for feeling a little confused and perhaps quite overwhelmed as to what this all means and how this really impacts your life and the lives of those you share the planet with. We also agree with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, that we can no longer afford any further delays in mitigating the effect of climate change. African countries are losing between 3 to 5% of their GDP due to the effects of climate change. Now, although Africa itself carries the least responsibility for climate change, the continent experiences much of its harshest effects, and this reality is not disputed. According to some estimates, Africa loses between 7 to $15 billion a year due to climate change, despite only emitting less than 4% of global emissions. It's become more clear in the last few years that Africa is bearing the brunt of the impacts associated with climate change. Even though African nations have been last on the list when it comes to contributing to the mess we now find ourselves in. Welcome, I am Dombini Marengani, host of season three of the Just for a Change podcast. If you've been following this series, you'll know that I have conversations with changemakers from South Africa and further afield. Sometimes it takes time to join the dots. For example, you may have noticed that the weather patterns around you seem to be changing. You know that usual rainfall at a certain time of year that you remember from when you were a kid. And now it doesn't seem to happen at the same time, or at all, as you remember. The good news is you're not losing your memory. But the bad news is that you're experiencing the reality mentioned in a blog post released by the Western Cape government in September this year that South Africa is experiencing a 2 to 4% temperature increase which impacts rainfall, water security, and food supply, amongst other things. The urgency of this particular issue has been growing, and at the Bertha Center, the Innovative Finance Portfolio team has been involved in work on the Green Outcomes Fund in collaboration with Green Cape, as well as the Green Development Plan. In addition to this, climate justice is one of the newer focus areas at the Center, and we're committed to bringing our passion, experience, and expertise to the table. Out of interest, do you know when the first climate change protest happened? In 1999, or perhaps 2005? According to National Geographic, the first climate change protest happened on the 22nd of April, 1970, when some 20 million people took part in a protest in New York City. It was the first ever Earth Day protest, and we still observe Earth Day on this day every year, all these years later. If people were already worried back then, why wasn't more done? Climate scientists have been sounding the alarm for years, and 197 countries ratified the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change in 1992, the first global treaty to explicitly address climate change. And how does justice fit into the picture? Why is climate change a justice issue at its core? 
As with anything of this nature, the answer is complex. And joining me to unpack this is Dr. Mao Amis, my guest for today. Dr. Amis is a thought leader on the green economy, leadership, impact investing, and green entrepreneurship, as well as being the founding director of the African Center for Green Economy, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary advisory think tank working towards accelerating green and inclusive economy in Africa. Good afternoon, Mao. Hey, good afternoon, Tombin. It's good chatting to you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. It's a real privilege to have you share your story with us. So um, I'm originally from Uganda. Uh, that's where I was born. And uh, my, I spent most of my early childhood there. And as you probably know, Uganda is really a beautiful country for those who have been well endowed with nature, beautiful landscapes and so on. So that's where I grew up. And I think that was really the foundation that, that laid the foundation for what I do I do today. Even though I always say that um, South Africa is like second home because I've lived the longest here in, in, in South Africa and I started my career here and so on. But um, I still feel very strong attachment to, you know, my childhood years, which I think set the foundation for what I do today. There are so many buzzwords and phrases that are used when it comes to climate change and the connected issues. Can you tell me what the term climate justice means and why climate change is also a justice issue? And talking about buzzwords, you know, it's true that, you know, there's a lot of things that are getting said around. But um, at the end of the day, there's a couple of issues that inform what we mean by climate justice. First is that obviously um, the world is warming at a faster rate than it should. And that is partly because of human activities. Okay, In any undertakings, as we try to seek uh, solutions to climate change, we take cognizance of the fact that those people who are most vulnerable, first of all, do not have the adaptive capacity to respond to the impact of climate change, even though they are not actually responsible for it in the first place. So climate justice is about inclusion, is about making sure that in the fight against climate change, we leave no one behind. Especially now, in a world that is very unequal, in the sense that there are a lot of people who are very poor, if you look at Africa, if you look at South Africa, and so on, how can we make sure that climate change solutions are implemented in such a way that everyone is participatory, it's procedural, to ensure that no one is left, left behind, especially those who will be impacted the most. So in a way, that's what climate justice is really about. Could you perhaps share a practical example of what social injustice directly linked to climate change looks like? I'd really like us to get a deep understanding of the relationship between climate change and the broader context of social justice. You know, a few years ago, we do work in the in the Northern Cape. And Northern Cape has had droughts that have lasted for years. You know, um, and Northern Cape, for those who know, is basically the breadbasket in many respects of South Africa in terms of grain production. And because of the persistent drought, farmers had to lay off um, uh, people, uh, livestock, you know, died and so on. And we found communities in this province of people who could not even provide um a daily meal for their households. And and that's partly because of this drought which made them to lose their jobs. And considering that they had no safety um, net to fall into in terms of, you know, 
the social grants that government is providing is not enough. But if you look and actually assess what is the cause of that drought that has persisted, obviously, is a much multiple factors, but climate change is a major contributing factor. So people being dispossessed because of of you know changes in, in climate is an, a classic example of what um, an injustice looks like, and especially considering that there is no specific response or fallback uh, position that they could be able to undertake in terms of ensuring that they respond effectively. You mentioned the the grant that the national government here in South Africa provides. Um, to indigent households, but it's not enough. Do you think that's something that could potentially be used to address the climate injustice? No, absolutely. I mean, I just came back from the uh, conference of parties around climate change, and one of the big discussion points is around climate finance. And, and really the climate finance is about availing funding for developing and generally poor countries to be able to effectively respond to the impact of climate change. And a lot of the conversations is around adaptation finance. Adaptation finance is basically finances that are required to build resilience, whether it's resilience at community level or resilience of ecosystems. Because think about it, if poor communities lose their source of livelihood, let's say their subsistence farmers, what is going to be their fallback strategy? You know, it, they will require support, whether it's from government, from other actors, to either respond to the, those impacts that they are facing or to be able to uh, offset any of the challenges that they're facing in terms of, let's say, providing of, of food at a household level. Because if you think about subsistence farmers, most of them, their livelihoods depend on the gardens that they, you know, they, they have in their households. And if drought circumstances change, they will not be able to cultivate and therefore will not have food on the table. And so those safety nets are extremely important. You know, on average, when you and I are faced with a climate uh, change uh, situation, we are more likely to respond much more effectively because, first of all, you are educated, so um, you can get the right information in terms of understanding what the predictions are. Uh, and, and people who are up the social ladder, you are protected in many ways. You've got insurance cover and things like that that will allow you to be able to respond. But a poor household do not have those um, uh, packages or those systems that would allow them to respond effectively. What it sounds like you're sharing is that there are many levels to social inequality and climate change is really just exposing the vast gulfs there are between the haves and the have-nots. Taking for granted something like having the right information about the weather report or understanding that there's going to be... um, differences in in a particular season and that I'll need my household or another household will need to adapt. I think it's something that people just take for granted, particularly in the policy space, not thinking about those without access to even the most basic information. Absolutely. You know, information asymmetry is one of the really major challenge in delivering and ensuring that we build resilience at, at, 
of our vulnerable people. And oftentimes it's not because the information is not there. It's just that maybe it's not in the right format, it's not channeled properly, and there's limited engagement around key um, actors within this space. And that's the other dimension around climate justice. It's an issue of representation, inclusion, and protection of rights of those who are most vulnerable. You know, sometimes these conferences that happen, they tend to almost come out as elite meetings. You know, you often ask, where are those the voices of those who are actually already on the brand of, um, of, of, of climate change? And oftentimes those messages are not coming across effectively. As we talk now, you know, Somalia, for example, is on the brand of this catastrophic famine, but yet having these conferences that are going on on and on, not really out of touch with the reality on the ground. It's really powerful. I've never heard the term information asymmetry, and yet it seems to really fit exactly what you're describing. Um, I definitely want to talk about global meetings and their impact on on the actual implementation of, of climate change mitigation strategies. But first, I'd like to ask you, since you've been in the sector for such a long time, how was it in the early years? Did people take you seriously when you brought up issues about the environment and protecting um, protecting the earth? Or is that something that's changed as climate change has become a much more mainstream topic recently? Uh, you know, when I look at uh, how the issues around climate change has been mainstreamed, I always uh, juxtapose it with my own career um, trajectory. You know, at school, you know, traditionally we're all told you must go, told you must go to university, study to be an engineer, study to be a doctor, study to be a lawyer, and so on. So, so when I studied botany and zoology, everyone frowned at what I was studying. It's like, hey, even people at home is like, what is this that you're just studying? You know. So uh, there was very low level of awareness around environmental environmental issues. But with time, I could actually just feel that people understood um, where I was coming from as these issues became very mainstream, as people started feeling the impact of you know, climate change, essentially through things like you know, flooding, um, uh, flooding and uh, you know, extreme droughts and, and, and so on. But I'd also like to say that the momentum has been built partly by the impact of climate change becoming really in your face and also these impacts happening in other places like the developed world, you know, the hurricanes that happen you know, in, in, in places like America and so on, because obviously a lot of the narrative is driven by the media. So as the media became very involved in, this, in these issues, um, uh, then they started gaining traction. Um, and for younger people, this is not a hypothetical issue. It's something that they can very clearly see happening. Um, around them. Recently, one of my colleague's sons asked her what the point was of all the work that she does for social justice and social impact if the world ceases to exist, which was quite an observation. Can you comment on the reality of the situation we find ourselves in? And what are some of the greatest challenges facing developing countries like South Africa in the face of climate change? Look, I think that, you know, we are, we are we're basically running out of time. You know, the world is not on a trajectory to keep global warming before below 1.5. And, and that means significant challenges are going to rise. We're going to see increased sea level, sea level rise. 
um, the intensity and frequency of extreme events is going to is going to increase. So in many respects, the your friend's child is worried, especially as a young person, that you know, by the time he is 20, 30 years, it will be a completely different world if we don't act. Unfortunately, you know, we have to act now because the sense of agency um, has to be palpable in the sense that there's no time. Um, the challenges that we face are really, really critical. Uh, and, and, and for me, talking about young people, and I'll come to your question about South Africa, is that, uh, of, of, I mean, the last couple of years, uh, there's really a bit of optimism because young people have taken leadership. They have taken responsibility because they have realized that, you know, the older people are never going to be able to deliver to them the outcomes that impact them. But more importantly, especially for Africa, it's a young continent. It's the young people who are going to lead, who are going to be most impacted by climate change. And so it really excites me that, you know, many young people, especially coming out of COP, that really young people are engaged at all levels of activism, even in the negotiations rooms and so on. Because I think young people bring a sense of agency to the, to the negotiation space, which hopefully would allow governments to act much more faster. And for a country like South Africa and for most developing countries, obviously the challenge is um, twofold. Uh, if you look at the country, South Africa, for example, is that South Africa is a highly coal-dependent economy. So on the one hand, South Africa has to decarbonize to move away from a coal dependency to a much more renewable energy trajectory. Yet on the other hand, South Africa needs to develop. South Africa is faced with significant socio-economic um, uh, challenges, in high levels of inequality, poverty, and things like that. So how do you balance um, development and climate change? Young people are living in a different world. And it's, it makes me wonder, what are the barriers um, that sort of keep us trapped in this endless loop of discussions? Um, particularly in, in in a context where countries which are not principal polluters are the ones that are finding themselves having to pay the excesses of more developed nations. Isn't that a bit unfair? And do you think that climate change mean, justice means the same thing in the developed and the developing world? Obviously, it's unfair. And I think that has been um, uh, recognized even with the... Uh, with the parties and during I think it was COP15 in, in, in Paris there was a principle that has been agreed about collective but differentiated responsibility and, and what that means is that we're in this together there's only one earth there's only one climate system so even though we are not responsible for this impact of climate change in the terms of developing countries, we, developing countries will be impacted. So how can everyone respond to addressing climate change in a manner that but recognizes the differentiated responsibility, considering that developed countries have more resilience, their, their economies are much more mature, and developing countries need to reach a level where they can, uh, they, they would have developed, they would have built resilience in the economy. And that's why 
it's important that developing countries, developed countries avail the financial requirements that developing countries need. Um, and one of those, for example, which was the outcome of COP27 is the idea of loss and damage. In the sense that there are, I mean, South Africa, Durban is a classic example. You know, earlier this year, uh, Durban suffered catastrophic uh, flooding, you know, and billions was lost in, um, in infrastructure. That damage and loss that has happened can never be recovered. And it's partly because of climate change. Who is going to be responsible for compensating those who have suffered that impact of this for the flooding? And that is that is that's what the developing countries were pushing for at COP27 to set up a special fund of loss and damage so that it can respond to those specific cases of damage and loss that has resulted because of climate change. Sounds like there's lots of realization of the costs of climate change, but little action to close the gap around the inequalities of climate change. You just mentioned the floods here in South Africa. The people who suffered the most were the people who had the least to begin with um, and found themselves not going from a position where they were living in precarious shelter to not having shelter, for example. You said everyone needs to take up the mantle themselves. So can you please tell us a bit more about the Africa Center for a Green Economy and the work that you do? So the center will be in this actual our 10th year and the vision we have for the center was to create a platform for emerging leaders on the continent uh, to be at the forefront of driving our development agenda. That's, so that's really our primary goal that, you know, we can't wait on anyone else to drive the change, to deliver the change that we require. And so that's really the, the foundation of what we're founded in. But our key uh, positioning or is that obviously we need to build evidence base. We need to ensure that when we're making decisions, decisions are driven by the right kind of information, by the right kind of evidence, because then we can be able to track progress. We can be able to understand what, um, what works, what doesn't work and how we experiment to push the agenda forward. So our center really focuses on that around, as a think tank, we actually refer to ourselves as a think-do tank. You know, it's one thing to just think and publish papers, but it's a whole different story to really be on the ground and push those boundaries. Um, we really believe that uh, implementation of strategies that either lead to climate adaptation or build local resilience is quite important. And so a lot of our work really is driven about how do we ensure that these principles, these challenges around addressing the challenges related to climate change, environmental degradation actually happens at the local level. And our work has taken takes very different dimensions. One, from a financing perspective, we're really trying to understand how can climate finance flow more effectively to the local level? Um, how can, uh, do, at the local level, do we have the systems and so on to receive this climate finance and to implement them in a way that you can get value, value for money? Just to give you an example, you know, South Africa just recently has been uh, awarded by a couple of developing countries about $8.6 billion to help to support the country's um, 
energy transition. And so for us, we're very much interested in seeing how is that those finances going to flow to the ground, what differences is it going to make, whether it's in Pumalanga where uh, ESCOM's coal plants are, are located, what is the impact going to be on those on those communities? So it's really around understanding climate finance and how that flows, because we think that um, we are in a position that act as an intermediary or bridging bridging institution. I always, when I, ask, I get asked this question, I say like, we come from these communities. We have stayed hungry. We have walked to school bare feet. We understand the pains of the man on the ground. But at the same time, we can operate in high level spaces, whether it's with investors, with policymakers, and so on. So we want to see ourselves as a conduit of Bridging the bridging the gap between what I see as lack of implementation on the ground and at this high level space where a lot of the talk happens but there's no action. Absolutely. Earlier this year, you did a TEDx talk titled "How to Build a Well-Being Economy in Africa." Can you tell me more about what you mean by a well-being economy, and also talk to the concept and practice of just transitions? Cool. Uh, so a, well, a well-being economy, in a nutshell, is an is an economy that that recognizes the limits of nature, and that an economy that does not have a negative impact on on the environment. An economy where people are happy, people are satisfied with what they're doing, and an economy that do not really degrade our limited resources. You now, if you think about our current economic model, I always give the analogies like a leaking bucket. You know, when a bucket is leaking at the bottom, you pour water, it will never get full. And that is because uh, our economic model is built in such a way that we extract from nature, we extract from nature, use it to power our economy, and we release it as waste into nature. So, so that is unsustainable. That's a, a linear economic model that is problematic. And, and so a well-being economy is, in a way, is trying to say, like, how can we build an economy that's much more circular? An economy, more important, that centers people's needs as one of the most important aspects to, um, to, 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 the, to, to the way of doing things. Uh, so, so, so really, that's what I mean by a well-being, a, a well-being economy that puts people first and also recognizing that we operate in a resource-constrained world. How can we make sure that our economic models do not degrade the environment as we know it, but regenerate the economy while meeting our human needs? That sounds revolutionary, Mao, um, particularly when we, when we, face the fact that our predominant economic model is one that is based on extraction and not necessarily regeneration. So what you're talking about here is, is, is very exciting. Um, recently, President Ramaphosa and South Africa were praised by world leaders at COP27 for its just transition plan. Can you comment on how you see this in comparison to other efforts made on the continent? And the global south just energy transition pa- partnership that south africa um has set up with developing developed country partners including us eu and so on is quite revolutionary in the sense that it's the first attempt that 
an economy essentially is attempting to transition at large scale from a coal dependent high carbon intensive model to a low carbon development trajectory so that is one element of um, the revolutionary nature of that partnership but more importantly south africa has committed that in its attempt to transition to a low carbon development they are going to ensure that no one is left behind they're going to ensure that vulnerable communities that are impacted by this potential energy transition uh, gain from this from this process are more are more empowered and hopefully new opportunities are created to address some of the systemic challenges South Africa is faced with in terms of poverty alleviation, inequality, and so on. So I think that that's, that's really very important. Um, the key issue, is, and it's just like with everything else, is how effective that implementation is going to happen. And questions have been asked already, how engaged uh, are the most affected parties? You know, we're talking about climate justice here. Um, to what extent uh, do vulnerable communities engage with these processes? And that's a lot of the work that we're actually doing at our center. Point in mentioning that implementation seems to be um, the South African policy uh, policymakers Achilles heel because we can design beautiful and well-structured um, ideals and perhaps even map them out to a reasonable degree. But when it comes time to mobilize the resources and the people to actually make the change happen, we sort of stumble there um, repeatedly. And I'm wondering in an environment where you have this top-down decision-making how does this work of making climate justice and just transitions a reality impact the power dynamics, especially in underserved or under-resourced communities which are directly affected by climate change? Power dynamics always plays out in all of these issues because at the end of the day, the person who has the information, who has access to decision makers in many respects uh, has an advantage in terms of how things eventually play out. But what I like about South Africa is that South Africa has also got a very strong civil society. You know, government can make these announcements are nice, but, you know, we have a very strong civil society that will always question some of these announcements, which I think helps to keep, um, uh, to put in place the checks and balances and to realize that um, uh, for things to work, you have to work with others. And for me, I think that's really the key thing is that, you know, we cannot sit here and say like, you know, South Africa government is not delivering or shouldn't, uh, is, is struggling with, uh, with implementation and so on. At the end of the day, it's, we're all in this together. It's a shared risk. And once we recognize that this is a shared risk, the question then becomes, what is the role of different actors in this space to ensure smooth implementation of something so revolutionary like the, like the JP? Um, or how can the private sector, how can that investment be leveraged by more investment from the private sector? How can vulnerable communities be empowered to engage more meaningfully in this, in this process? Because ultimately, 
this is about them. Ultimately, it's about building resilience of those vulnerable, vulnerable communities. Definitely, um, I like I like the optimistic tone of your answer, um, even as we face a very daunting problem. Um, in the spirit of optimism, can you share any interesting examples or projects um, that you've come into contact with, either on the continent or elsewhere? where they are doing climate justice well. <laughs> you know, when I, was, when I was contemplating this question, you know, one thing I, 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 and I think I've said this over and over in this uh, interview is that, you know, with climate change, there's no one solution that fits all, okay? And, and so I, I, I wouldn't want to say like, there is this one example of things that work, Perhaps what I can say is, what are some of the building blocks? What are some of the ingredients that are, that are required to be put in place if one is to actually achieve um, climate justice? And in most of my experiences in, is, 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 in, is in Africa, I think that there are a couple of things that need to be put in place. One is that we need to empower the voices of youth and women because they're the most vulnerable, they are the ones that are going to be impacted the most. Um, and they, especially women, are in a much more better position to influence how things get done, especially at the household level. So any discussion that does not really recognize the presence of youth and women in the room, I just think it's, um, it's bound to fail. So that's really important. And we're seeing, we're seeing across the continent, especially with, with donors and so on, that you know you cannot implement a project that does not really put women and youth at the center of delivery. So that's one. Um, the second critical ingredient that's required, obviously, an enabling policy environment. You know, there's so much that you can only do on your own as actors, as activists, as community members, if the, the vision is not very clear from the top. So enabling policy environment is very clear in terms of, for example, recognizing the importance of a climate change policy in place and working with different government structures to ensure that is, um, that is, that is implemented. And then a third, probably there are a lot of others, but ultimately, the financing is very critical. You cannot do anything without um, finance. So ensuring that the right finances flow to the right spaces, to the right actors is going to be critical. But more importantly, is that we need to be very innovative in how finance flows, whether in terms of the mechanism of the financing itself, or the actors, the mode of delivery, and so on. We need to think outside the box. and. At COP, I made the strong cases that, you know, our current economic model, especially the financing uh, uh, setup, is not going to deliver us to a new economy, to a low carbon carbon economy. We didn't talk much about this, but a lot of the work that we do at the center is around entrepreneurship and how we support entrepreneurs and the pains that entrepreneurs go into accessing um climate finance. So until we start to think about financing in a very innovative way, we will be stuck. I wholeheartedly agree. What do you think are some other things that the average citizen can do to shoulder their part of the climate justice effort? No, uh, look, um, obviously, 
as individuals, you know, all of us have what is called a footprint. Um, a footprint related to uh, your consumption patterns, you know, um, taking local action to make sure that your own footprint is reduced. You are much more uh, sustainable in terms of how you consume your goods, your goods and services. But also, I think as individuals, as citizens, we need to be more engaged in these issues. We need to recognize that these issues affect us all. Um, and we need to call our leaders into action. In fact, if you look at how big businesses have been able to take decisive action, and it's because of active activism of citizens who started asking questions uh, around, I mean, I'll give a classic example. You know, in Amsterdam, the biggest, um, which is which has one of the world's biggest flower auction, actually, I think about forty percent of flowers that are auctioned in Amsterdam come from one specific uh, valley in 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 Kenya called the Naivasha. And a few years ago, consumers in 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 the in Europe started asking, like, do you know where your flowers is being produced? Do you know that? A lot of fertilizer is running into those rivers that is polluting those river systems. Do you know that uh, workers are being unfairly paid wages to produce your flowers? And that's, those simple questions being asked by consumers force these companies to go back and to completely transform their value chains to increase workers' wages, to make sure that um, their plants don't pollute the rock or river systems and so on. And it's actions that started by individuals and, and eventually companies realize it's actually affecting their bottom lines and they have to take action. So do not underestimate the capacity of an individual to make a change. No, that's very powerful. Very powerful indeed. Um, and there's no doubt that a lot of what you do must have its challenges. So maybe you could share with us now what keeps you hopeful about this work and what is your vision for a more just world, particularly where it comes to climate change? Look, I think that what keeps me hopeful is that, first of all, we only have one planet. You know, we have no plan, planet B. There's no another planet we could move into yes. if things don't work out. So, so we're stuck in here. And we have absolutely no option but to do, to do what we do. Um, and also just, you know, the, I think that what keeps me doing what I do is um, the satisfaction one derives out of this, that, you know, in your own small way, you are able to nudge a conversion forward. You're able to nudge, you know, so you're able to put solutions on the table that actually deliver, deliver results. So... Obviously, I don't want to say this is an individual effort, but it's just that I think the sense of agency has become so um, important that we have no option but to do what to do what we're doing, and it's also beautiful because you know <laughs> um, the work that we do creates spaces, allows you to engage with people at all level, uh, and and really. Um, puts you at the forefront of seeing how some of these key challenges could be in, could be solved. Very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Toby. Thanks, everyone. I don't know about you, 
but I'm thinking about the future and how it might look. Change needs to happen at every level of society, and it's easy to look at the macro level and point fingers, but forget about the small things that we can do every day to be active citizens in this very crucial time in the world. I can't help but think that Leo Tolstoy was onto something when he said, quote, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself, unquote. With all that said, though, I'm encouraged that more people are taking active steps to become more aware and make the lifestyle changes necessary to ensure that our planet is around for quite a bit longer. And let's not forget that often the people most impacted by climate change did not cause it. And that is a justice issue we can and need to get behind. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning in to season three of the Just for a Change podcast. Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're interested in hearing more conversations with change makers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts and feel free to share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.